Hi all, how are you doing? I'm Claire English back with another edition of Ripples, the podcast that tries to look at the ripple effects of big decisions or events. Our first season was about COVID and the impact it made on cancer care. It was absolutely devastating. And in a way, with this third series, we've come full circle. The original COVID threat came and went, or rather it snuck off into a corner, and we all moved on. Well, most of us did. We came out of lockdown. But what about the forgotten 500,000? They've never been able to resume their lives. They continue to shield two and a half years on. There is a solution out there, it's called Evershell, but the government and devolved powers too have put that back out to review. This means winter's approaching and a potential lifeline, physically and psychologically, has been removed. How would you feel if you thought help was coming only to find that you'd have to take your chances again as we edge towards the winter months. What kind of a life is this? Paused until possibly next year, maybe beyond, who knows? Waiting for a treatment that could allow you to leave your homes and to some extent try to get on with life without fear of infection. We've got an expert guest for you on Ripples, a highly accomplished and motivated consultant clinical immunologist based at the University of Birmingham. She's Professor Alex Richter, and uh, she's had a varied career to date, starting with 10 years service in the army. Now she combines her academic research with clinical work, meeting the very people she's trying to help on a day-to-day basis. Alex sees at first hand how their lives are being impacted by this long enforced social isolation. Covid numbers are on the rise again and winter is round the corner. This is exactly the point where patients and their carers are getting more anxious and looking for solutions. Yes, there is one. We mentioned it, but we'll get to that in the latter part of our conversation. I promise you we will do that. So please stick with us. It's a long listen, but worth it, we hope. Let's get cracking. Alex. The patients who are vulnerable to COVID were vulnerable before COVID. And this has never really been properly recognised. Um, and, you know, they, they, they are vulnerable to all infections. And so many of my patients that were shielding during COVID actually were better than they have ever been. Because they were protecting themselves by having a hermetically sealed life. Correct. So they just weren't being exposed to these pathogens that, you know, usually they'd get three, four chest infections a year. Maybe one of those would give them a pneumonia or put them in hospital. But um, yes, if you're not being exposed to those, you, you, you get well. But then as you go out to life, what we need is strategies to allow these vulnerable individuals to not to be able to have a life because survival is no longer sufficient. But able to balance that risk. So when I talk to patients and I talk to patient groups, I talk about this balance of risks. Because we've heard a lot in the press, haven't we, about the impact on children's schooling, about the economic impact, about the mental health aspects of complete shielding. But we are in a better place in that we know we know this is a respiratory pathogen. Mm-hmm. And you know what? We know how a spiritual pathogen spread. 
And so things like, you know, being in crowded spaces, being indoors, all increases risk of transmission. Because getting an infection is a really complex interaction between the host and how vulnerable the host is, us being the host, the pathogen, which is whatever virus, bacteria is out there, and the environment. Because if the environment is, isn't right, that pathogen can't get into the host. And if the host isn't vulnerable, there's a good chance that the pathogen won't get in. And if the pathogen isn't very virulent, it's not going to cause a problem. So you need that perfect storm to occur for someone to get an infection. And it, you know, if you think about that triangle, it will, it will squeeze and it will change shape according to how severe that infection is or the force of transmission or how vulnerable the individual is. So when I talk to patients, it's that kind of, well, what about the environment can we change? We can say, well, let's manage the risk by saying, if you're going to see your grandchildren, don't go and see them in a soft play center <laughs> when they're a hundred different other children. But, you know, maybe, you know, go for a walk or, you know, if you bring them in, you know, or come into the house, but just, you know, just keep a window open or, or something like that. Because I've had so many patients that haven't seen their grandchildren, which is devastating. And the impact of that is just enormous. And, you know, if things like your, you know, a regular card game or um, a coffee morning or something is incredibly important to you, then to me, it makes sense you do that, but in as safe a way as you can. So find an alternative way of doing it. And I think the huge advantage that we have now is we've learned so much about infection control and patients who are vulnerable have learned so much about infection control that they can start to take on this individual responsibility of actually what works for me. So that's kind of the, the, the protection aspect of it or the, the not getting infection. But the other thing I also talk about to my patients is what do you do if you get an infection? So many of my patients don't realize that they will present with an infection in a different way to you and I with a healthy immune system. So in what way? So tell me what happens when you get sick. <laughs> you you feel low, flat, you've got no energy, uh, you, you your mental health goes down as well. You just start to draw into yourself. You might get a fever. Fever or runny nose or whatever, physical symptoms. Exactly. Yeah. So all those symptoms are caused by chemicals in the body that are there to fight infection. Now, if you are on medicines which suppress those chemical signals, you're not going to present like that. So you may not get a fever. You know, I, can, I know patients who are on some therapies who can have a rip-roaring pneumonia and their inflammatory responses and their fever is normal. So how do because they know then? How do they know they're infected? How does because that... you've got to examine them. So, so, so they'll, they'll be feeling unwell, but it's working out why they're so unwell. And this is again, you know, which is why telephone consultations are difficult um, with this group of patients. And it, you know, it is often that they know they're not right, but it's not obvious why they're not right. And they just need looking at and eyeballing. 
um, and, and examining properly. So, yes, yeah, so they may not recognize they've got an infection, but that's why I empower my patients to say, you know what? You are your own expert. And I love this concept of an expert patient because my patients know better than most of their clinicians when they're appalling. Well, there is a possible conflict point because having spoken to some patients, uh, friends of mine, they do know their bodies best, but quite often the people that are treating them get a bit frustrated by, well, I don't know, even the, the hubris of the patient actually knowing there's something going on when they think, well, they're telling them, well, we don't see anything going wrong. That's a bit of a point of conflict, and isn't it? And for me, it? this comes back to the art of the consultation. And it comes back to communication and active listening. And more often than not, I think if a patient is presenting and they've got a concern, the balance of probability is that there's going to be something wrong. And that's all. That's what we do in medicine. It's about balance of probabilities. You know, I've got huge sympathy for, you know, I, I was a GP for a year and it is an immensely difficult job when I was in the army because you, you, you've got a, so many of the symptoms that we have are non-specific. You know, patients do not turn up with a flag saying, Woo-hoo, this is what I've got. Okay. They present with non-specific symptoms. And unfortunately, a headache could be anything from anxiety and mental health difficulties through migraines, cluster headaches, to a brain cancer. And the symptoms are identical. So it's the story around those symptoms that helps that doctor prioritize and work it out. So it is all about balance of probability. And I think we increase our balance of probability of getting it right through active listening. Yes, Alex, I'm with you on that concept of the expert patient. Only they, only you listening to this know that your body is behaving in a certain way. You are living with any changes and you're probably hypervigilant about any changes. Now, by now you will have noticed I am no scientist, I'm no science buff. I have no direct experience of shielding and waiting for my life to resume. And yet I'm becoming quite familiar with a lexicon that describes various problems with our immune systems. So I thought it might be useful to ask Alex to flesh out some of the terms so that we can understand better. That's the starting point. But then we're going to move on to the challenges and frustrations for those living with and treating patients whose immunity is compromised. First though, the science bit. Alex, over to you again. So when I talk about immune suppression, I think about a active process to suppress somebody's immune system. And that might be anti-inflammatory drugs, biological therapies, or cancer treatments. What we're trying to do is essentially dumb down or eradicate someone's immune response. And the main reasons we do that is for inflammatory conditions. So when somebody has an underlying condition which is producing inflammation that isn't switched off. 
So usually when I get a bee sting or I hurt myself or I get an infection, my immune system dials up and we get an inflammatory response. And that is, it's red, it's hot, it's swollen. But what happens an hour after that bee sting? It dials down. But in rheumatoid arthritis, in those joints, there's a constant bee sting. So that, that we call it auto-inflammation. So that inflammatory process is, is constantly dialed up. So that is what I would call an inflammatory condition. And so what we have to do is dial down that inflammation with immune suppressive drugs. Now, immune deficiency is when the immune system is deficient. And the immune deficiency could be to do with immune suppression because it is insufficient, or it could be due to the underlying condition that the patient has, such as a blood cancer, or it could be because of their genes. And they're just born that way, or they develop it, you know, their, their genetic material, you know, they diagnose the genetic condition during life. So immune deficiency is when the immune system is deficient. And if it is genetic or it is due to another cause that such as immune suppression, it can target different parts of the immune system. So if you have a genetic defect, often it just affects one part of the immune system. And so it'll have a very specific risk of infections because the immune system is targeted. It doesn't all work the same way. It's incredibly clever. If you think about infections, they're anything from an absolutely tiny prion to a one meter long tapeworm. So you need a huge different diverse immune system to deal with that. And so if you have a genetic defect, you may have a very specific vulnerability. But some genetic defects do affect the wider immune system. And certainly many of the immune suppressive drugs that we use, such as steroids, have a really what we call pan-immunosuppressive effect. So they suppress all parts of the immune system. And those are the most vulnerable because it's not just one part of the immune system that's knocked out. They're very vulnerable to lots and lots of infections. And if it is a specific part of the immune system, we might call that immune deficiency, if it's antibodies, antibody deficiency. Yeah. So the overarching term, I guess, is immune deficiency. That can be caused by a number of different causes. And one of those is immune suppression. Well, you've made it clear to me, which is brilliant, but it brings me back to the forgotten 500,000. So these are people that know what it's like, just what you've, you've explained there, to live with a condition, have an existential fear about going outside, especially come winter, because we're getting into winter and we know that the numbers are rising for COVID again. They want to know how to protect themselves. Apart from shielding, they want to get their lives back. And there was the promise of an antibody therapy. And we've been talking about Evershield a lot on this podcast and it didn't happen. Um, what's the consequence, Alex, of not having anything that's uh, preventative this winter for people in this position? So I don't think there is a magic wand to make anyone's immune system better, okay? 
that might be that, you know, they don't need their immune suppression anymore. So you can stop the immune suppression and their immune system recovers. Brilliant. But actually, for most of this 500,000, that's not possible. Um, because either the cancer's not cured or they've got a genetic defect. So what there has to be a strategy and there has to be a number of different ways to address this. For me, the first way is to, to prevent infection, as we've talked about. So what can you do to prevent yourself getting a, an infection in a way that allows you to live your life? Well, simple adjustments like, you know, if you can avoid public transport in crowded conditions, if you can work in ventilated spaces, get reasonable adjustments from your employees, you know, make decisions about um, wearing masks. And, you know, people ask me what quality mask. And I said, well, that kind of depends on the situation. And, you know, if you're feeling in, in, in a place where you can't avoid lots of people in an enclosed area, you might want to choose a higher grade mask than just a surgical mask or a piece of cloth. So there's that prevention of infection and that balance. And that what, along with that is vaccination. And without a doubt, vaccination has had a huge impact, even for those 500,000. There is a small percentage for which absolutely nothing has happened with the vaccine. And even then, it may have done something that we just haven't measured because the immune system works in different ways. And so, but although, so we know that um, hospitalization and death is so much better, even for immune suppressed patients than it was, but it's still not as good as the general population. And these are the patients that are still using the health service for COVID and other infections much more so than any other population. So I would really encourage people to get their vaccines and their booster vaccines. And there is good evidence that those boosted vaccines are, um, are, are keeping them topped up with some kind of protection. Can I ask you, now, Alex? Sorry, yeah. I just want to ask you about Evershield. And again, I'm concentrating on that because that's the one thing we've been talking about the most. Yeah. I mean, what is it about that that is so special? Could could there be an alternative? And and really, is this a special, new, amazing drug therapy, or is this something that we've had for ages and now we're just you know hearing more about it? Well, I've told you about my antibody deficiency patients, Claire, and they don't have antibodies or they don't produce good antibodies. So for seventy years now, we've been replacing their antibodies. And we do this in a way that's it's called pre-exposure prophylaxis. So every three to four weeks, they come to hospital or they do it at home. They have an infusion of antibodies. And what we do is we take blood or plasma from patients and we purify all the antibodies in a product called normal human immunoglobulin. So I say to my patients, every bottle of immunoglobulin has about a thousand people's protection in it. Wow. So it's an incredibly expensive product and it's a very rare product. So we need to be careful with how we use it. But for antibody deficiency patients, this massively reduces their risk of infection and hospitalization. So the concept of pre-exposure prophylaxis with antibodies is not new. And um, 
what I've just I've explained to you about normal human immunoglobulin, antibodies only last in the body for about six weeks, six to eight weeks before they're renewed. So if you give antibodies, you've got to keep topping them up. But what's clever about these engineered antibodies, and Evershield is an engineered antibody, and it's not a broad um, antibody. So it's not like the bottles of immunoglobulin I give where there are hundreds of thousands of different types of antibody. This is one type of antibody. This is purely targeted against COVID. But what it has been done, it's been engineered to not last six weeks, but six to 12 months. Brilliant, you might think. <laughs> Brilliant, because vaccines in healthy people are lasting about four months. So in those who are vulnerable, it's lasting probably less. So we've got a treatment that is not only targeted, producing higher antibody levels in an individual that can't produce antibodies, but it lasts a long time. So there's a really good chance that they would only need to be treated once a year. So it's not like that what I do for antibody deficiency patients, they would need to come in for one infusion and um, and even then, there is no reason why it couldn't be rolled out in community clinics. They wouldn't have to come to hospital if the setup was appropriate. So um, it, it, it's there is some concern, Claire, that, and the reason some of the arguments for it not being rolled out is that in laboratory assays, it is less effective at neutralizing um, the, some of the Omicron variants, mm. okay? Because it was originally set up to target the Wuhan strain. Yeah. But, but, but okay, that is one laboratory assay neutralization. And as an immunologist, I know that antibodies work in lots of different ways. So actually, and common sense would dictate that, well, is there any downside to giving these antibodies? Because let's face it, 32 other nations are doing it. Cost. Okay, so what's the cost? Well, it, it, it will be negotiated by every country but something in the ballpark of, you know, 600 to a thousand pounds per a year's treatment. So all you would have to do is prevent one healthcare intervention, i.e. going to hospital to make this cost effective. Because if but you protect, that. so, sorry, that's not, that, that's a direct cost, Claire. Okay. The indirect costs are mental well-being, being able to have your job, economic. So actually, you know, these monoclonal pre-exposure prophylaxis therapies have been put forward for nice appraisal, which, you know, is a six to nine, well, nine months to a year process. It can be even longer, okay? And frankly, what they do is they assess what evidence there is to date and they weigh up that evidence. So that what happened is the decision has been basically kicked into the long grass for the winter. Um, rather than every other decision we have made for this pandemic has been pragmatic. Okay. So we license our AstraZeneca vaccine and our Pfizer vaccine 
And within a month of MHRA, well, the following day after MHRA authorization, we're getting the first jab into a human. Mm -hmm. Okay, wonderful news. And then within a month, completely unevidence based, we extend the dosing interval. Okay. Yeah. So we're making sensible, pragmatic decisions based on what people know and, 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 and evidence. Antivirals, we've just rolled them out. You know, we that this new bivalent vaccine has been tested in about what, 450, 460 patients? It's not been tested in immune deficiency patients. But we've made a pragmatic decision to do it anyway. So what's going on? Here? This, I don't know, but I just another point is antibody equity. So Patients who are being vaccinated with the original Pfizer or Moderna vaccine is against the original Wuhan strain. But we know from real world evidence that that is causing protection from severe disease with all the Omicron variants. So it is absolutely incongruous to me that we use the argument for Evershield that it's not protective against Omicron as a reason not to use it. Yet for vaccination, it's okay. It's completely contradictory. Well, it's just, it's not consistent. And, and, and I, you, uh, you know, ha, I, the process of evaluating and thinking and, um, you know, I accept that those making decisions do not have necessarily the background in this. But they've got experts. And they, may not they can see ask. That I do. But wait a minute. They've got spads. They've got experts. They're open to scientific committees. Isn't that the point? They've got people that know better than them because they're politicians. Yes, and and I would love an open debate with the individuals who are specialists or so-called specialists as to how they've made the decisions that they have made. Because we've not seen the rationale, we've not seen the evidence base. We've not, we don't have that kind of, if we're going to make eminence-based decisions, I think we need to judge whether those individuals are eminent. Yeah, because- and what is their experience to, to, to bring to the table? But at the moment, that is a closed door. So understanding the decision-making, from my point of view, is very difficult. I genuinely, having looked at what is available, evidence-wise, I don't understand how this decision not to roll out pre-exposure prophylaxis has been made. Because, you know, we've got the precedent, we know prevent giving antibodies in advance works. We know that the antibodies against the original Wuhan strain work against severe disease because we've got the evidence of that from vaccination. We know which groups of patients are vulnerable and haven't responded to vaccination. So why has no one joined up those dots and said, tell you what, for this winter, Let's do this because actually this is this is how we're going to be treating these patients going forward. What's the legacy from COVID? When when we have pandemics or flu strains, the ability to roll out pre-exposure prophylaxis to a specific pathogen 
to individuals that don't respond to vaccination has got to be the way forward. Gosh, I know you've got to go soon and I'm just watching the clock as well, but I want to say to you, explain to us, Alex, why everyone else listening to this and everyone else in the country that is not included in the forgotten 500,000 should care about what happens to the 500,000. What are the ramifications? Because if we don't protect them, it affects all of us. It's not just on a personal level. These aren't our children our parents, our grandparents, our colleagues, okay? So there's a personal level why we want them looked after. There's a societal reason because we want them back at work. We want we want them contributing to the economy and contributing to society. But also, if we're not looking after these patients and keeping them out of hospital, then they're going to contribute to how busy and how under funded and resourced our NHS is, they will disproportionately be using the NHS, which means that the routine care that those that aren't vulnerable need is going to be more difficult. So actually, this is a societal decision. This isn't just the forgotten 500,000 care. You can hear the palpable frustration from Alex. There is a solution out there. It could be rolled out. And yet, I totally concur with her. A big old open debate is needed. A conversation that urgently needs to be had so that all views, concerns, updates, expertise, myth-busting can happen without any filter. Otherwise, nothing moves. That's the current culture. Decisions being made in isolation. Join the dots. We need to seriously think about how that can happen and fast. We are just about out of time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us on Ripples. Please do share with anyone you think would be interested. We want to amplify the issues discussed. Make sure that every opportunity, the stories, the real life stories and experiences of the forgotten 500,000 are told and retold. To that end, though, I've begged a favour from my pal Blanche Hampton. She took part in our first episode, you might recall. Uh, She's a woman who knows what it's like to shield for two and a half years. And Blanche has recorded a bite-sized slice of her predicament. Are you ready, my friend? Hi, uh, my name is Blanche Hampton and I'm 66 and I'm one of the forgotten 500,000. I've had two bouts of cancer, a double mastectomy and lupus. I'm exhausted and my health is plummeting every day. The small mountain of drugs that was helping me has drastically lowered my immunity. So I have no protection from COVID, even though I've had five doses of vaccine. I've been shielding for two and a half years now. Please do all you can to expedite the rollout of Evusheld and to improve access to antivirals. This decision by the UK government to hold another review of Evusheld is a disaster for people like me. With winter coming, I don't know that I'll see the results. Will you join with us and campaign for hashtag the forgotten 500,000? Thank you.